0: I'm Chris Jensen, and you're listening to New Books in Buddhism, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're talking to Daniel Weidlinger about his fascinating new book, From Indra's Net to Internet, Communication, Technology, and the Evolution of Buddhist Ideas. Daniel, welcome to New Books in Buddhism. Thank
1: you very much, Chris. I'm happy to be here.
0: In general, I, I like to begin with uh, just a, a question about where you came from, how you got into Buddhist studies. But just in case someone is tuning into this episode without knowing anything about your book, um, what would you give a sort of an elevator pitch of, of the book and what it covers? Well, the
1: book is about... Buddhism and technology and in particular communications technology. And it looks at the way, the different ways that different communications technologies affected the development of Buddhism. So for some time, I've been thinking about this question of how different forms of communication Influence the message that they are communicating, as well as the way the message is received. And of course, some of these basic ideas were first laid out by the famous Canadian um, thinker Marshall McLuhan. And I was influenced a lot by his ideas as when I was in um, undergraduate myself, and tried to include them in the book. So it looks at how. Buddhism started in the oral period in India, and then, of course, it moved into a uh, period of writing, and then went, uh, and then as uh, society developed, we, of course, developed modern communications technologies like radio, television, and the internet. And Buddhism has been, um, ha- has changed and grown in accordance with those different technologies. So the book examines how that has happened in a nutshell.
0: Okay, so so you mentioned there that you had, yeah, as an undergrad, become interested in media studies and in particular in the theories of Marshall McLuhan. So how did you get from there to Buddhist studies?
1: So when I started my uh, college career at McGill University in Montreal, I entered in physics and I had done mostly sciences in high school. I was uh, generally pretty good at math and that kind of thing. So I started my program in physics, but after a year of that, I just felt like I wanted to learn more about the bigger ideas. So a lot of the physics, especially the first couple years of physics, it's a lot of formulas and memorization and not so much discussion of the actual uh, implications of the formulas and the larger ideas that shape the way the physical world operates. And then I took a few uh, religion courses as electives. And I got very interested in those. However, uh, for a brief period, I majored in communication studies. So I went from physics to a semester as a communications major, uh, largely because I I actually had a number of friends who were in it, and they suggested I get into it. And in that program, I was exposed to the, the writings of Marshall McLuhan and other communications theorists. And that really stuck with me um they influenced me a lot just the idea that the way uh, rather the format that we use to communicate influences the way the whole message is um is digested by the listener i thought was a very intriguing concept and then i kind of let that go and then i went into religious studies as my major but that idea always stuck with me so when i did my first book uh, which was my uh based on my PhD dissertation in Chicago, that was on the oral, the interface between the oral and the written uh, forms of communication in in Buddhism in Thailand. And that book basically got me interested in continuing the study into the modern period and looking at what happens once you have the the internet. So this book is kind of based on some of the work I did for my PhD, then expands it all the way into the internet period as well as looks uh, back further into the period of early buddhism in india whereas the the dissertation just focused mainly on thailand
0: okay so it kind of spans the historical gap in, in a way so you, while your your original book because i noticed in preparing for the interview that uh yeah as you say uh spreading the dhamma in the introduction also mentions McLuhan. And so I was going to ask you how his ideas uh, helped to develop the, the theoretical framework for this book. And, and so basically uh, your current book um, both reaches farther into the past and all the way up to the present, whereas your previous book seems to have been focused on a very particular period in the development of Thai Buddhism. Is that correct?
1: Yes, I think that's, definitely a good way of putting it. And I would say that I should point out that in academic circles, McLuhan and his way of thinking is not terribly popular anymore because he was, he gave a fair bit of importance to the technologies that we use in the shaping of society. Right? So he, falls more on the side of what you would call technological determinism than is popular nowadays uh, because nowadays it's more popular to feel that society influences the technologies we use and yes of course the technologies we use influences society in some way but the bulk of the influence goes from the social construction of these uh elements to um the technological elements themselves where it, Whereas in McLuhan's thought, the bulk of the uh, causation goes from the technology to society itself. And I agree with McLuhan more on that score, that it is in fact the technology that influences society more than society influences and shapes the technology.
0: So do you think that your research um, is in some ways parallel to The uh, recent Buddhist studies work being done by scholars like Justin McDaniel, who are paying more attention to material culture. And what connection do you see between a material culture-based approach and a technology-based approach like the one that you're describing uh, or attributing to McLuhan?
1: Well, certainly I like the work of Justin McDaniel a lot. And uh, we were in Thailand. uh, We had some overlap in Thailand when we were both doing our dissertation research. And in fact, uh, we used some of the same manuscript collections. And I would say that, so there's a lot of overlap between the uh, material culture approach and the approach that I take. And in fact, uh, largely, I mean, especially the stuff that uh, Justin McDang is doing, there's uh, a great deal of overlap. We both are interested in the ways that the actual manuscripts affect the, uh, the culture that they are in. Uh, but I certainly tend to take more of a, uh, I guess you could say, technological determinist approach, right? So basically, and this definitely comes from my scientific background. So as we said at the beginning, I started with uh, a year of physics as my major and had studied science in uh, high school and was uh, very much interested in science and technology since I was a young child. So when I went into college, I actually didn't expect to end up in humanities at all. But nevertheless, I did and really enjoyed it. But over time, I came to feel that a more scientific approach to uh, the world and society was something that I felt was lacking in a lot of the humanistic studies that I was uh, involved in and reading and that kind of thing. So I'm trying to bring to kind of mesh scientific, materialistic understandings of how the world works with humanistic understandings of how it works in this book and the research that I've been doing lately. Um, So I would say that that's one difference between the more traditional material cultural approach, which does use the various uh, tropes of cultural studies in it less than I do. I tend to use tropes that are uh, developed more in um, scientific studies of materials and things like that.
0: So, Given that you've also just produced an uh, an edited volume called uh, The Digital Humanities and Buddhism, I'm wondering how you'd describe the linkage between uh, from Indra's Net to Internet and that edited volume. And would you consider them to be part of an overarching research program? Well, the book about uh, Indra's Net to
1: Internet looks at how media especially the internet and digital media are used to transmit ideas of buddhism whereas the next book uh, the uh, uh, digital humanities in buddhism looks at how scholars are using computers to research and understand buddhism so in that sense they're part of an overarching project that looks at buddhism and computers and the digital world. But really, it's quite a different idea, right? Because one is on the production side. How is Buddhism itself moving through the internet? The other one is on the reception side. How, especially on the academic reception side, right? Which is how are scholars using digital media to understand Buddhism? Now, I would also point out that in, I, I've also got another book that's um, published by Routledge called, um, Wait, what's <laughs> called um, the Pixel in the Lotus: Buddhism, the Internet, and Digital Media, and that book looks at how uh, Buddhist practitioners are using digital media to study uh, to practice Buddhism, and that's also an edited volume. So that actually follows. More directly from the research I was doing for this book from interestnet because it's on the production side, not on the academic analysis side, which is this latest book that you were
0: involved in right so I think that you just made an important distinction there and, and this is obviously a distinction that features heavily in uh, in Indra's Internet, which is that you have chosen to focus not specifically on Buddhism or Buddhisms, but rather on Buddhist ideas and how certain uh, communication technologies can lead to the propagation of said Buddhist ideas. So uh, how would you define a Buddhist idea and why did you choose to define it in that way?
1: Thank you for asking that question, because it gives me a chance to clarify some issues that I think some people who uh, read the book casually might uh, gloss over a little bit. So I do want to be clear about what I'm talking about here. And this answer might take a little while because it's uh, somewhat complicated. So the idea is that different forms of communications technology are likely to uh, propagate different kinds of ideas. So if we look at, and the book is deeply influenced by evolution as well. So I've done a lot of studies of evolutionary psychology and biological evolution over the last few years as well. And I tried to bring that all together into this book. So in the same way that if we look at a physical environment in nature, you have certain kinds of animals that tend to evolve in certain ways, in certain environments. So, for example, in an aquatic environment, there are certain features that animals in that environment tend to have. Now, I say tend because they don't have to have them, but they often do have them. So if we look at fish, for example, uh, one of the famous examples is that um, you've got ichthyosaurs, which are a kind of dinosaur that lived in the sea. Then you have uh, sharks, of course, and other kinds of fish, and then you've got the um, uh, the marine mammals like dolphins. And even though they have completely different uh, they have completely different genetic lineages, all three of these kinds of animals ended up evolving to have a similar shape, right? That the uh, dolphins and sharks and ichthyosaurs all look almost identical and uh, operate in similar ways because they're in this particular environment of the sea, although they have different sources. Uh, in the same way, so if we look at um, communications as an environment, right, so for example, in ancient India, uh, they lived in a oral environment, and uh, in uh, A hundred years ago, we lived in a written environment in terms of communication, and now, of course, we're living in a digital media environment. So that's the environment that we exist in. And the texts that are propagated through those environments, if we think of them as uh, the texts and the ideas in those texts, if we think of them as evolving entities, they are going to move and change over time in a way that accords With the environment that they are in. So if we think of ideas as kind of like an animal, so you've got animals living in the sea, animals living on land, and animals living on air. And in all of those cases, they tend to evolve various features that have some commonality, right? So land animals tend to evolve limbs, and sea animals tend to evolve fins, and air animals tend to evolve wings. Now, they don't have to, and they don't all, but they often do. So, in the same way...
0: Oh, and, and sorry, uh, just to be specific, ideas, um, the the reason that they do so is because they are being influenced by their environment, which I think is specifically yes, exactly. the point that you're trying to make about the communicative environment.
1: Right, exactly. So, the environment influences uh, how they evolve, because... Well, because if they don't evolve certain features, they simply can't exist in that environment, right? So we have to remember that evolution occurs, is not teleological. They are, well, as, as far as science tells us, right? It's not teleological and it evolves largely by chance. Um, but some elements that evolve tend to do well in certain environments and therefore they are propagated, right? So if we look at ideas... Um, and this is a, a, ver- a quite a controversial claim, I certainly recognize. But if we look at ideas and think of them as evolving in some ways by chance, uh, ones that evolve with certain characteristics in certain environments are going to tend to propagate well, and ideas that don't have those characteristics in certain environments might not propagate well. Now, of course, those ideas might propagate well in different environments but in this environment it doesn't propagate well so and i'll I'll get i'll explain this more in a second (laughs) um but in terms of buddhist ideas so the reason i say buddhist ideas and not buddhism is because technically i am trying to trace certain key ideas that are most closely associated with buddhism in the book so in a sense it maps on to buddhism but um it doesn't have to map on explicitly to uh, a constellation of ideas that is called Buddhism. What I'm most interested in is the ideas themselves and not Buddhism. So let me give you an example. Um, One of the main ideas that we find in Buddhism is the idea of compassion for all beings, right? And the Buddha talked about this at great length. Mahakaruna, it's often called in Sanskrit, the great compassion, And one of the things that differentiated the Buddha's ideas on this line from other religious thinkers is the idea of compassion for all beings. And as some of the uh, listeners might know, there are, for example, um, meditations, uh, part of the Brahma Vihara meditations that are discussed in various Buddhist texts where you are supposed to think of compassion for somebody you care about and then expand it to greater and greater circles, so to people that you don't care about and eventually to people you actively don't like. And you're supposed to feel compassion for all of these beings. Now, of course, compassion is an important part of many different religions, but in the ancient world, the first one that really explicitly spoke about compassion for all beings, not just for beings that are part of your own tribe, right? This is the key difference. Of course, um, I mean, Confucius talked about compassion, but his compassion was a a graded compassion, right? Where you have more compassion for those of your family and less so for people uh, who are farther away from you. And of course, Judaism talks a lot about compassion in the Bible. We find that uh, a lot, but again, there's more of a focus on caring about uh, people of your own kind and less so for people who are different. But of course, again, that is found in the Bible as well, but in Buddhism, it's most explicit. So that's, uh, but, but, there's two separate ideas, right? There is just the idea of compassion for others, and then there's compassion for others that occurs within Buddhism. And since it uh, is is so strongly associated with Buddhism in the ancient world, although, of course, there are people, obviously, right, that might have been living in ancient Greece, and just had the idea, hey, wouldn't it be nice to be compassionate for all beings, regardless of, you know, whether they're Greek, regardless of whether they worship Zeus, or maybe even regardless of whether they're human, right? So we should have compassion for a horse. We don't want to injure the horse for no reason. I mean, of course, there might have been individuals in ancient Greece that had those ideas, but um, those ideas are most strongly associated with buddhism so when i look at the development of those those ideas in different communication environments and uh, especially into the internet i'm saying that in a way it's kind of buddhism because that's what the buddha talked about and nobody else was officially talking about it in his day at least nobody else had got followers that exist to this day right But yes, other people did have the idea. And um, in that sense, it's interesting to me as well. So when it comes to the internet, there are lots of ideas on the internet that people have. But in as much as they cohere with things that the Buddha said, I'm calling them, quote unquote, Buddhist ideas. Uh, So if I might just continue this answer for one more (laughs) minute. So, um, So in the book... I have identified six key ideas that one finds in early forms of Buddhism. And I'm sure that a lot of people would disagree with me on this and say that, you know, these are not the proper ideas to focus on and the the Buddha said many things beyond this and that many people said these things as well. So all of that is true. But I really think I am on solid ground when I say that, however, having said all of that, if you say, well, what religion... Focuses most on these six ideas uh, more than other religions. I think it is fair to say that Buddhism does. So, in a sense, I'm not interested in Buddhism as called Buddhism. I'm interested in these six ideas, but also in the sense that these six ideas are very strongly associated with Buddhism, and there's no other system of thought that systematically combines these six ideas in the way that Buddhism does. In a sense, you know, people that hold these six ideas and might have come to it independently from their use of the internet or whatever, uh, in a sense are kind of associated with Buddhism. And even Buddhism itself acknowledges this, right? As you might know, there's the whole, uh, uh, the whole, what would you call them, uh, being known as a Pratyeka mm-hmm. Buddha who is a being that, that you know, in the Buddhist texts, it's acknowledged that there are people that come up with key ideas of Buddhism on their own. It's kind of interesting that Buddhism itself acknowledges this, that, you know, you can come up with key ideas of Buddhism on your own. And, uh, you know, you're not really a follower of the Buddha in that sense, but you are still associated with the religion more broadly thought of. So that's what I'm concerned of, uh, concerned with in the book.
0: So when you choose to focus on Buddhist ideas as so defined and you and you choose to frame the question so as to include, for example, the people that are often described as nightstand Buddhists, in other words, modern people who happen to be interested in Buddhism, maybe read about it before they go to bed, regardless of what confessional community they may or may not be a part of, um, Given that your book has the historical scope that it does, in that it looks at three time periods, so the founding of the Buddhist religion in India, the development of the Buddhist religion along the Silk Road, and then uh, contemporary internet-enabled culture, do you think that there were individuals who would correspond to that nightstand Buddhist category in the previous two historical contexts? Yes,
1: I definitely do. Um, th- you know, that I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. But certainly, I think that there were people who were interested in the ideas of Buddhism, who might have heard about it in market squares or wherever the various monks might have gone and preached the ideas. And, um, you know, they agreed with some of the ideas and thought, hey, this is an interesting um, ideology to have. But they didn't necessarily call themselves Buddhist or uh, officially identify with the, with the community. And in fact, Buddhist texts talk about this quite explicitly, right? The early texts where the Buddha wanders around from town square to town square and gives, uh, Dharma talks and people gather around. And, you know, the texts themselves say some people stand up and say, Oh, it's like a lamp has been shown to me. And the truth has now come clear to me and I want to become a follower of you. And other people say, you know, these ideas are interesting and I disagree with that one, but agree with that one. So they had arguments and debates in the town squares. And I think uh, that they were not as different from us as we like to think. Now, of course, they didn't have nightstands and they didn't even <laughs> have books to keep on those nightstands. But nevertheless, they certainly had ideas and ideas were discussed pretty freely and openly in uh, ancient era, India, in fact, that's one of the whole arguments of my book is precisely that for uh, the kinds of constellation of ideas that I associate with Buddhism to really flourish, they kind of tend to do best in a communicative communicative environment in which there is a lot of freedom to discuss ideas, especially amongst people from different backgrounds and um, different uh, uh, you know, maybe coming from different cultures and whatnot. And that's what makes the internet so powerful for spreading Buddhism, because it allows people to speak more freely from a wider variety of backgrounds and cultures than any medium ever before. And um, that's why Buddhism is doing so well on the internet. The last chapter of the book uh, talks about survey studies and more empirical data that shows the, the growing popularity of of Buddhism. In fact, I would also mention in terms of the nightstand Buddhist thing that uh, there's a book by Jeff Wilson called Mindful America that looks at the incredible popularity of mindfulness in America and he also deals with this question of are these people, you know, Buddhists or is it just that they are interested in Buddhist ideas? Because one of the things is that many of the mindfulness teachers talk about it as, you know, ancient wisdom, but don't necessarily mention Buddhism because they don't like if you're going to present at Google, you know to a thousand employees there how to be more productive through mindfulness right you don't necessarily want to say oh and by the way doing this makes you a buddhist so there's a reticence to talk about the specifically buddhist uh background of mindfulness and 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 in fact many teachers are explicitly trying to divorce this practice from the whole constellation of ideas and uh, rituals and whatnot that are associated with Buddhism. So this is, um, so the idea of separating the ideas of Buddhism from the actual, uh, religion is something that Buddhists themselves are doing. So I think that I'm justified in doing this for the purposes of the book.
0: So, um, given the, the enormous both temporal and geographical space that's covered in this book going from the founding of the Buddhist religion up to the 20th century in North America. I was wondering if you've experienced any uh, I don't know any pushback from scholars like that this sort of broad expansive study is it's kind of atypical in contemporary Buddhist studies scholarship which tends to focus on The uh, on on specific local Buddhisms, so I I was wondering how you see your work fitting into trends in contemporary Buddhist studies and whether, yeah, how the reception of your book has maybe uh, come up against some of those trends.
1: Well, I thought that I was going to have a lot more pushback on this point than I have actually gotten. Now, the book is um came out uh, in uh, the fall. So I haven't really seen formal reviews yet. It often takes about a year, as you know, for books to be reviewed in the various academic journals. So I'm very curious to see what people say about it on that score. But certainly when I've given talks about it at various universities, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, a number of the ideas in it. But I haven't gotten pushback, and maybe that's just because of the time limit uh, that I was given to give the talks, right? But um, uh, I haven't got as much pushback as I would have thought. However, you are certainly right that this book bucks a number of trends in the humanities, which is to study things in a more uh, specific time period and local culture. But what it does, what it does latch on to is trends outside of the humanities to look at big data. So and And perhaps this is uh, an influence of my scientific background and my interest in the digital humanities. So, as you know from the book that uh, that I edited that you were part of, in the digital humanities, there is a trend to look at broad based um, broad based patterns that we see that only really come out from looking at a lot of data across large swaths of time and many millions of people. So we have to remember that if you, if you think of knowledge as a kind of telescope, you can focus in on things and learn a lot. Like if you look at the moon and focus in on it really uh, in in great detail with a telescope, you can learn about the contours of the surface of one particular, uh, what are the very, are they called seas Uh, seas on the moon? Of course they don't have water Mm -hmm. in them, but they look like seas. Um, or you can focus out and look at the whole solar system and see where's the moon placed within that, uh, within the whole solar system. And you learn different things by doing them differently. So for sure, I am bucking the humanities trends right now by doing such a broad, uh, swath of history. And of course, necessarily I have to look at it in a somewhat shallower manner than I would have if I was Uh, writing a book just about one particular city at one particular decade uh, on the Silk Road, of course. But I'm not claiming to be studying those things. I'm looking for broader-based trends that you can only see by looking at things from a uh, larger perspective. So As long as my claims, I I mean, I think maybe that's why people haven't had so much difficulty with the book because I'm not claiming that this book is a close look at Buddhism in Khotan in the seventh century. Right? What I'm claiming is that this book is looking at broad trends in the ideas associated with Buddhism over a large period of time and looking at whether there seems to be any correlation between certain communicative uh, features of the environment in which these ideas are living and the ideas themselves. So in as much as I'm doing what I'm saying I'm doing, I think that's why people haven't given me as much trouble as uh, they otherwise would have, as well as this whole trend, not in the humanities per se, but in the digital humanities, to accept the idea of looking at large amounts of data from a uh, several steps back, rather than a close reading and realizing that you can learn things of interest from that. So for example, if you look at a text without reading it, but have a computer go over millions of words and look for certain patterns in the word usage that, you know, you might not notice if you were just doing a close reading of each word, there is some, uh, some knowledge that can be gained from that as well. It's just a different kind of knowledge.
0: So uh, this is changing topics a little bit, but um, as we've been talking about, your book has quite a broad scope. So looking, as we've said, at early India, the Silk Road, and the, the contemporary period, and how those particular communicative environments uh, were particularly well-situated for the development and transmission of Buddhist ideas. Um, now, obviously, there was there was no space to do anything else in a book of this length, given that's already quite a tremendous scope. But if you had had a little bit more space, could you think of any other historical moment that this particular theory might have been helpful for exploring? Well, I certainly
1: wanted to explore Buddhism in China, more than I did. And in fact, I had begun to write a chapter that looks at the, um, uh, the spread of Buddhism in China. But I just realized one, that it would make the book too long. And two, that that's a subject that I really just do not have the expertise to deal with. So, uh, I abandoned that, but it's, It's definitely something. In fact, maybe you and I can have a discussion about this at some point, in fact, because this might be – in fact, I'm going to send you the draft of that chapter after this talk, if you don't mind. And um, I definitely – because I think you saw the same – in China, the the course of Buddhism, when it had – was more popular and less popular – does seem broadly to follow some of these trends. You know, when there was more trade with the outside world in China, when China was more open to um, different cultures and whatnot, we saw Buddhism doing quite well there. And then at certain periods when China kind of closed more in on itself, it seems to me that a Buddhism, or at least the ideas associated with Buddhism, were maybe not faring as well in China. So that's just uh, an idea that I've had, but certainly I'd like to research that more.
0: So in the fourth chapter of the book, you discuss the seven treasures of Buddhism and, and you give two lists of those seven treasures. So the the earlier list includes such items as wheels, elephants and horses. And the later example uh, includes the, uh, the seven precious goods like lapis lazuli, pearl, coral, gold, etc. Yes. And right. you make a note that all of those precious goods were products of different regions and could only have been collected by individuals who were part of a large-scale trade network. Now, what I thought was really interesting about that is that the other chapters tended fo- uh, they tended to focus on ways that Buddhist thought was naturally compatible with or, or even a logical outgrowth of. Uh, a specific set of communicative possibilities, things like expansive trade, a heterogeneous society, interaction with uh, people of diverse views, etc. But what I thought was interesting about the claim made here is that it seems like it might be going a little bit farther than that. So I, I guess my question is, to what extent do you think that these Buddhists, the Buddhists who uh, formulated these lists of seven treasures were self consciously aware of the compatibility between their teaching and their communicative context
1: boy, that's a really good question um, I think that well, I think that the traders who were uh, involved in the uh spread of Buddhism around that part of the world had some sense that Buddhism was a religion that um, that was very compatible with their lifestyle and the experience that they've had of the world. So there must have been some sense of that. But I'm not really sure. I mean, it's very difficult to know exactly what people are thinking about uh, their own belief system, right? Because we live in our belief system, and it kind of runs... Our brain for us. So to stand back and have a kind of third order um, understanding of why we have it and how it helps us is somewhat uh, difficult. And I'm not sure exactly how much they might have known about that or not. But I think that they probably had a sense of it. I mean, one thing I think is for sure not correct, and that is. When scholars, and I talk about this in the book as well, when scholars look at people that have certain ideas and assume that the people, um, well, let's say you have a, a kind of instrumental view of these ideas, right? So like some king adopts a certain religion because it will help him uh, legitimize his rule in this or that way, right? Uh, you often get that kind of statement. But I actually do not think that that is correct. I think that people adopt things for reasons that we can never really know. And in fact, they often never know them themselves. But by chance, if those ideas shape their behavior in a way that leads them to be successful, then in retrospect, we look and say, wow, look how brilliant this king was because he adopted this new religion and, uh, you know, he knew it would help him consolidate his power by getting power over the priesthood or, you know, whatever it is. But really, I think people are, it's not that they're not that clever. It's just that there are so many things going on in life that uh, to really isolate one idea and say that the person knew that that idea would somehow help them gain this goal is just not quite right. There are just too many reasons to put into any one book about why any individual has the beliefs and ideas and practices that they have. What we can know is how they've helped that person. But whether that person adopted them in order for them to help him in this way, whether that person knew that they would help him in this way, or whether it was all just chance, and that by chance that person with those ideas ended up doing well in the world. And then in retrospect, we scholars come in and think, look how brilliant they were to plan their life in this way. But I don't think that's the way it works. I think there's a way more chance involved than we could possibly imagine.
0: Well, and as you so eloquently point out in the book, regardless of the extent to which uh, particular lines of argument or images were chosen intentionally, it is certainly the case that the figure of the traitor images of the road images of the trade route even uh descriptions of nirvana as a great city all of those uh all of those linguistic usages are certainly compatible with this communicative context whether that was an intentional rhetorical move or not
1: yes exactly right I think that it, uh, I I just don't know about the intention behind it, but there is certainly no doubt that the case is, right? I don't know the cause, but the case is that Buddhism was strongly associated both in imagery, in uh, literature, in the common mind with uh, the trading life and trader communities and merchants and, and, and things like that. But, you know, whether they were themselves aware that there was this connection and what the meaning of it might be, I just don't. Know. So
0: jumping forward a little bit to the section on the internet, um, An interesting observation that you made was that many of the architects of the internet as well as cybernetics as a field in general, seem to have arrived at philosophical positions that seem to be at very least Buddhist adjacent, or to use the terms that you use in the book, they seem compatible with quote-unquote Buddhist ideas. So I was curious why you think this might be.
1: So um, as people know, Steve Jobs, uh, associated himself with Buddhism and even called himself a Buddhist at a certain point in his, in, in his life. And, um, in the book I mentioned the writings of Norbert, uh, Weiner, who, uh, is one of the, er- really coined the term cybernetics, right? In the, uh, fifties. And, uh, Many of the ideas that he came to through his thinking about these issues are also, as you say, similar to a lot of Buddhist ideas. Now, why is this? I think, I mean, this is where we get to the heart of the matter, right? That people who are really immersed in the world of the computers and the Internet, who really deeply understand this idea that we can be connected to each other through communication, even though we live in very far parts of the globe Uh, these kinds of people are likely to begin to okay so in order to answer this question really i would have to go through and it's a good opportunity to do so the six major features of buddhism that i focus on in the book because i mean we should definitely talk about that in this podcast for a second so let me just quickly go through them so And again, I understand that people disagree with this. And I'm not saying that, you know, this is – I'm not trying to say that this is the essence of Buddhism. That's not the argument I'm making, right? It's not like I'm trying to say that Buddhism ought to be this and anybody that doesn't believe these ideas is somehow not a real Buddhist. That's not the direction I'm trying to go with this. I'm simply trying to identify trends that one sees in Buddhist thoughts in different contexts and say, well, what do they have in common? Okay, these are six things that seem to be in common and let's look at where they pop up in other contexts, right? So that's all I'm saying. It's not like I'm not trying to make a normative understand what Buddhism ought to be. Anyway, here they are. So it's universally applicable, right? The Buddhism specifically said, go monks and teach my teachings in the four corners of the world, whereas other people did not specifically say that in those days, right? So Judaism, for example, another ancient religion, was meant for the Jews. It wasn't meant to be spread for everybody to follow. Okay, then there's compassion for all beings, which we talked about. There's, uh, And of course, this idea developed more as Buddhism developed, especially in Mahayana. But the idea that there's some sort of transcendental reality that we do not necessarily have direct access to right now in our regular state of mind. But that if you go deep into yourself through meditation, you see that there is some transcendental element Uh, in later buddhism it came to be thought of as shunyata right nothingness but something that permeates things and uh is held in common throughout uh reality then there's a focus on personal experience and a reduction in blind uh belief in faith that's passed on down from generations past there's also the idea of the individual Having moral responsibility rather than, let's say, for example, in other ancient uh, civilizations, you had a, a sense of community responsibility, but the individual, as individual uh, who's held morally responsible for their actions, is uh, another key element of Buddhism. And uh, there's a reduction of ritual and an emphasis on the ethical components. Uh, of behavior. And that's not to say that, you know, Buddhism doesn't have ritual. I mean, as anybody listening to this knows, there's a great debate about exactly what is the importance of ritual in Buddhism. And I don't want to get into that right now. But certainly one recognizes that compared to other ancient religious leaders, the Buddha certainly emphasized ritual less so than other ones did. I think that is not debated. So those are the main elements that I focused on. And if you think about somebody involved in, you know, like a Steve Jobs, for example, somebody involved in the early development of computers and the Internet and these kinds of things. um, Well, compassion for all. Once you start living in an environment in which you can contact somebody who lives in, you know, let's say a so-called, quote-unquote, enemy country, you know, uh, in Iran or something like that, Um, or or somewhere around the world that is viewed, you know, by the country you live in as somehow being, uh, having enemy qualities. But if you can just chat with people there and be friends with them through playing a video game with them uh, on the internet, obviously you are going to have more compassion for people living in those countries than uh, if there was no communication whatsoever going on between you and people in those countries. Uh, So whatever you're told Uh, About their behavior is going to be what you think. So if you're told that, oh, these people are evil and wrong, well, you're going to think that because you have no way of counteracting that through your own uh, experience of communicating with them. Uh, Again, universal applicability, right? The general idea that Buddhism, which was the first world religion uh, before Christianity and Islam arose, you had Buddhism, which almost uniquely in its day and age was intended to be spread to all people. So again, if you are living in a, in a, a, a world of the internet, the idea of some, sorry, the idea of a, a set of ideas, um, being spread to all people is something that seems perfectly reasonable to you, but in the past, it might not have if you didn't have a communicative environment in which that was even possible. Um, then Obviously, if you look at the Mahayana, if you look at the Mahayana idea of Shunyata, or in fact, the uh, Tathagata Garba, right, that there is a core essence to all beings that is similar in some way, you know, that core essence is nothingness, and the Buddha had that nothingness, and therefore, we all share in that. Um, That's another Buddhist idea that again, using the internet, and you see that there are commonalities amongst people all over the world, the, the basic idea that humans are not so different, but share common elements, and therefore we should have compassion for them. And in fact, beyond that, we should realize that in some sense, we are them, right? Uh, these kind of Mahayana ideas that one finds would propagate well in an internet environment because of the features of the internet that just allow you to communicate with and learn about people from different uh, cultures and different uh, parts of the world. And so on and so forth for these other elements. I won't go into detail, but, you know, individual moral responsibility. We know how uh, modern day life and individual reading, there's a lot of work that's been done about how reading silently, which is what people do on the internet, and of course in the... Uh, written period as well, leads to more of a development of a sense of me as an individual, and hence individual moral responsibility uh, rolls on after that. I mean, you can't have individual moral responsibility if you don't have the idea of the individual in the first place. And reduction of ritual, etc., etc., that kind of goes along with modern wired life as well. So in a nutshell, that's kind of the the six major elements of buddhism that i focus on in the book and uh in you know just a few minutes trying to explain how somebody involved in the internet in a deep way might start to feel that these ideas are more resonant with them than somebody living in a small isolated village um that's not attached to the internet let's say
0: and so in brief you've just answered there the the question that you said your students often pose which is quote unquote does the internet make you buddhist as you note on page 203 um so with that being said and given that we're almost running out of time there is one question that does immediately jump to mind for me and and i'll just give a little bit of a preamble first so um jaron lanier the technologist Uh, In his book, You Are Not a Gadget, makes the observation that sometimes interface design decisions can structure and even to some extent determine uh, both user experience and uh, any resulting intellectual products that can be created through those interfaces. So an example that he gives in his book is uh, MIDI, which is often used as a, a sound recording. Technology And so the reason that he talks about it is that MIDI is based on uh, keyboards. And so the assumption inside of MIDI is that every sound in a song is going to fit onto a tonal grid as well as a rhythmic grid. And he notes that one issue with MIDI is that as a result of that interface design, it's very difficult to replicate certain kinds of instruments, like a trombone or a violin that can slide from one note to another, etc. Now, the reason this is relevant is that well, uh, as is as recent yes, <laughs> so, <to hear> <laughs> as has recently been exposed in con- congressional testimonies and elsewhere, uh, you could look at Facebook sort of the prototypical social network as, in a way, a sort of anti-mindfulness technology, given that one of the primary design goals is to keep people engaged on the site as long as possible, and that they've discovered through the development of their algorithm that one of the ways of doing that is by keeping people engaged angry and outraged. Like that's one thing that can cause people to remain on Facebook as long as possible. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, that articles that stoke those sorts of emotions are so prevalent on Facebook. So with all of this being said, um, you in in the last few chapters of the book, you explore the hypothesis that regular internet use is compatible with, and maybe even generative, generative of, uh, mental states that make uh, certain Buddhist uh, theories, certain Buddhist ideas seem more plausible. So I guess the question is, uh, how do you square that hypothesis with the use of Facebook to exacerbate American clannishness in skewing the 2016 federal election for Donald Trump or with the radicalization of white nationalists in uh, forums like 8chan. So so how do you see those two historical realities playing against each other?
1: So it's interesting if you think about the election of Trump that um if we just focus on the idea of compassion for all uh, that's a key Buddhist idea. And certainly the idea of compassion for others who are not like you was one of the key elements of the Clinton campaign and was one of the key, was distinctively not, or decisively not one of the elements of the Trump campaign. But yet Trump won. However, um, if you look more deeply, you realize that one, um, Hillary Clinton got about 3 million more votes than Trump, right? So she won in terms of the, Overall population and two, if you specifically look at the demographics who voted for the Clinton campaign versus the Trump campaign, you will see that the group of uh, the social groups that are associated with far more internet use, such as younger uh, college students versus uh, older retirees, voted very, very heavily in favor of the Clinton campaign. So in fact, if you look at it, there's a very straight line. Um, uh, 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 sorry, there's a very straight correlation between how much you use the internet and how likely you were to vote for Clinton. So in fact, rather than disprove my theory, the whole election of Trump actually strengthens it, in my opinion. Uh, next, if uh, I want to focus on the first thing you mentioned about mindfulness. Now, you're certainly right that a lot of websites, Facebook and others, do not promote mindfulness. And in the book, I do not focus that much on mindfulness, because in my opinion, and again, there's different opinions on this, but mindfulness is not an end in and of itself, I think, in Buddhism, but rather is a tool that one uses to get to deeper truths that the Buddha is trying to focus on, right? So mindfulness is supposed to help you become more compassionate. It's supposed to help you realize that all things are always changing, right? It's supposed to help you realize anicca, the impermanence of all things uh, through, you know, looking at yourself and seeing how your own mental thoughts can be broken down into their component parts and stuff like that. But in as much as, you know, everybody listening will know this. That the internet makes you realize the intransient, sorry, the transient nature of all things, the impermanence of all things, the ever-changing uh, features of our world. If the internet can do that without making mindfulness, uh, sorry, without making you mindful, well, at least it gets to the ultimate goal of mindfulness, which is a deep understanding that everything is always in flux and always changing.
0: And I think that's as good a note to end on as any. Obviously, there'd be much more that we could say about this fascinating book. But uh, yeah, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Daniel Weidlinger for sharing his time and expertise in discussing his exciting new book, From Indra's Net to Internet, and to thank you for listening. Uh, I'm Chris Jensen, and you've been listening to New Books in Buddhism on the New Books Network.